content warning. This episode contains difficult histories and personal narratives that could be traumatic for some listeners. Content includes violence, death, genocide, and racism. Please be advised. History is bleak. It can be very difficult to confront. Many things have happened that contradict the moral codes society has built over time. Some of these actions and events permeate in the tortured memories of many. Some have been swept under the rug to then be rediscovered and discussed. But no matter the circumstances, humans have been and are capable of terrible things. How do we address these issues in contemporary times? Interpretation serves as a means to confront and discuss these difficult histories which plague the memories of many. Today, we will explore that which we have to explore, to ensure the continuation of their memorialization and public consciousness. These are the stories from our difficult past on the Kalamazoo Valley Museum's Interpretive Hour. My name is Jacob Wolf, And I'm Gray Wilson. And today we're talking about just that, the stories from our difficult past. And whether they happened within the past 50 years or even hundreds of years ago, these histories continue to be contentious and continually explored and discussed. To start off today's episode, we are going to explore sites of genocide and two in particular. The first one we're going to address is the site of Auschwitz-Birkenau. For those unfamiliar, Auschwitz-Birkenau was originally the site of Polish army barracks. It wasn't called Auschwitz-Birkenau at the time, but instead had a different name run by the Polish government. However, in World War II in the 1940s, when Germany invaded Poland, the Nazi government took over this site and converted it into the largest concentration and death camp run by them. It was supposed to be the culmination of their final solution, that being to wean out any non-Aryan races out of the European continent and to make Lebensraum for the German people. Overall, this was an integral institution, a part of the Holocaust, which led to the deaths of millions of Jewish people, political prisoners, homosexuals, Roma people, Jehovah Witnesses, just to name a few of the various people marginalized and killed by the Nazi government. And this site was no exception, being absolutely large in its magnitude. There were three complexes on the site, Auschwitz I, Auschwitz II, which was Birkenau, and Auschwitz III. These held a variety of prisoners and served different purposes, but nonetheless led to vast amounts of torture and death. Many individuals who were not killed in gas chambers or murdered by squadrons with guns died of disease or very commonly of starvation. This can be noted on their IDs, which often stated the reason and cause for their deaths. Also at these sites were other forms of human atrocities. Nazi officials raped many women at the camp, assigning them roles as prostitutes, for one. There was also general assault and general abuse and torturing of prisoners for sport. Overall, the site is an absolutely gruesome site, and now it only sits as Auschwitz I for all of Auschwitz II and Auschwitz III were wooden structures and burnt down after World War II, either by the Nazis themselves or by invading Soviet forces. The site sat as an empty shell for a long time, and the original brick Polish barracks, Auschwitz I, as mentioned earlier, was the only thing that stood. But after World War II, it was then converted into a museum which is its core function today. The site is visited by tourists every year, and it's a very common destination for both mourners and those 
who want to see where the atrocities happened. So, now that this is a site that many people visit, it is a museum, how does an interpreter approach this difficult, difficult history full of torture, murder, death, abuse, just to name a few? Well, according to Tomas Szelbuski, who works at the site as a tour guide and interpreter, he states that one has to think of the core purpose of the site. A place like this is a museum, but it also functions as a cemetery and a site of education, a site of reflection. It's all of these things in one, and it is one of the primary sites to preserve the memories of the Jewish people, the gay people, the Roma folk, and all other types of individuals who were either kept and killed at these sites to remember what happened. Because according to him, the Nazis wanted to erase all memory of these people and these places to make it a perfect crime and interpreters ensure that no one forgot the evil that these sites embodied. And they don't continue to forget the evil that these sites embodied. This ensures that the official historical narrative does not also fail, because as this story gets spread over years, and survivors can no longer tell their stories personally, it is very likely that skewed narratives could come about. For example, a very popular Hollywood film called The Boy in Striped Pajamas is an example of falsely portraying history. Although individuals see this as a film to discuss the absolute horridness of the concentration camps, in general, it misportrays the harsher realities that happened there. These people were completely isolated from anybody. They would have had no opportunity to interact with a child, especially another child. And also likely that other child would have been killed. Most children were sent to gas chambers and were not allowed to live there. And people expect to see the sights that were portrayed in these movies, and in reality can be disappointed to learn the truth was much harsher. And that's not appropriate to the memories of the individuals and victims at these sites. And that's the role of the interpreter, is to allow those voices and those narratives to continue on, so that people understand what happened, to understand necessarily what this means and how to prevent it. And another question that Chabuski brings up is particularly how can we adequately balance proper commemoration of the victims of mass extermination with the needs of contemporary mass tourism? In today's ephemeral age, individuals are often consumed by media, their phones, information comes by very quickly and it is extremely hard for some individuals to be contemplative, to meditate on things, which is ultimately the purpose of these sites, since they don't serve a function primarily as just a museum, but also as a cemetery, and also as a place of reflection. And his answer to this is to emphasize historical awareness, respect, and responsibility. And I would argue that responsibility is the most important facet in interpreting this site and provoking. Because remembering will provide respect to the victims. And remembering is that responsibility that these people hold. Because as time continues on, as mentioned, and various narratives get skewed and survivors can no longer tell their stories, if these individuals remember their responsibility to these individuals' memories and to continue on in public consciousness so that they guide these in their decisions in the future and bring them to their children so that they all understand what had happened there, then the visitors ultimately leave with a more plentiful experience and the purpose and goal of the site as a cemetery, place of reflection, place of education, really achieves its culmination. So ultimately, it's emphasizing the individual's stories and emphasizing the responsibility of the visitor 
to not only be historically aware and to respect the site, but to be responsible in the memorialization of such a difficult history. Thank you, Jacob. And upon doing my own research into topics as such, I found that many of them were lacking information, or as you alluded to, presenting it in an unsuitable way. Of these sites that I was researching, the Armenian Genocide was a particularly notable topic. Between 1914 and 1923, the mass murder and expulsion of 1.5 million ethnic Armenians was carried out in Turkey and adjoining regions by the Ottoman government. Clearly, this is one of history's most profound and utterly horrifying events. Despite this, in today's world, Outside of a museum proposition from 20 years ago that is yet to be finalized, little information exists regarding one of history's most gruesome systematic exterminations. There does, however, exist an online museum which recounts that the world soon forgot the Armenian atrocities. The Turkish Republic denied that they ever occurred, but as new genocides have occurred, the memorials created by the Armenian community provide a stark warning to the dangers of ignoring these crimes against humanity and the dangers of whitewashing the historical record. The warning signs that came before the Armenian genocide have repeated themselves in Nazi Germany, Rwanda, Sudan, and many other places since 1915. We can ask why each time a new genocide occurs, but we should not have to. We need to remember the past for a better future and we need to help those who inherited this past come to terms. Clearly, as the online museum is illustrating, there is so much more room for interpretation in this field. The last sentences of the quote just stated are particularly important. In order to remember the past, we need to commemorate it properly. As we'll go on to discuss in this episode, the need not just for remembrance, but a proper execution of it is crucial which presents cultural institutions that discuss these difficult histories with a very challenging role. Absolutely. And now we're going to shift away from talking about the horrors of genocide to something closer to our country specifically. And this particular issue is interpreting American slavery and the enslavement of African-descended people in the continental United States. A particular set of sites that are contentious in exploring American slavery are those homes of the founding fathers of this country. At the homes of these founding fathers, some narratives of slavery have been fully incorporated, but this process has developed in the past few years, really just within the past 10 years, and the practice still has a lot of room for growth. Now, there are different typical types of interpretation for confronting American slavery. For example, there's symbolic annihilation, which means that the site does not recognize the existence of slaves or state that it was not important enough to discuss. There's also trivialization or deflection. This could mean that the site displays slavery as benevolent, or refers to contemporary whites as slaves. There's also the issue of separating sites or exhibit areas on slavery, segregating this knowledge from the main narrative of the site itself. And generally, the goal for interpreting these sites where slavery occurred is relative incorporation, which means that there are attempts to discuss slavery and these attempts are incorporated throughout a site, and hopefully in the end, this leads to full incorporation, which means it is an integral part of the interpretive plan and seen as integral to the site itself as it was in the historic context of the past. For example, at Mount Vernon, a few years ago, an interpreter portrayed William Lee, Washington's valet. He stated that life at the estate was better there than for other slaves, in first person, because marriages were recognized and six slaves were cared for. However, this creates that benevolent narrative which shies away from the fact that, in the end, he was owned 
It creates that grateful slave narrative and is an example of trivialization and deflection. Slavery in this case is used to valorize Washington, and the approach trivializes the institution completely. Also, only using first person when addressing the person's experiences is not particularly appropriate, because we're not sure how William Lee felt about slavery. We're not sure about his opinion about how his experience compared to other slaves in the region. He's expressing an opinion that is not an opinion of the actual historical person that he's supposed to be interpreting. And overall, it creates something that is completely false and not rooted in fact. Now, one could perhaps in this case deviate from first person and go to third person to discuss different aspects of the slave experience, or if there's any true written material from William Lee himself, perhaps then it would be appropriate to incorporate that sort of narrative. But in the end, what this does is it trivializes the institution and provides a false perspective of an individual and puts that perspective as if it was the truth, as if it was historically contextualized. Also, in a video on their YouTube channel from a few years ago called How to Make Linen from Flax, white living historians perform the work of enslaved people, who are mentioned once in the video as skilled enslaved weavers. This has no mention for the fact that they solely did this type of work, and can misguide the viewer into thinking it was a benevolent, willing practice when in reality, it was carried out by black enslaved folk. However, within just the past few years, after these videos have been released, and after this interpreter portrayed William Lee, there has been some development. For example, Brenda Parker is a black interpreter, and she works at the site. In portraying Carolyn Branham, she discussed in first person what the meals of slaves were like, and the various places they would get ingredients, and what the Washingtons ate in contrast. This experience, this video, this interpretive content does not shy away from any negative aspects. In this, she addresses the slave quarters, which are deceptively nice, made of brick, but in reality slaves were required to stay where they worked so only a very few amount of slaves lived there, and those that did still experienced the hardships and persecutions for being enslaved and black. She gives a metaphor of a quilt, where the front looks beautiful, but on the back there are stitches and knots, which make that beauty come together. According to her, enslaved people remember the stitches and knots. And she ties away the video with a particularly moving and provoking quote, this being, a cage is still a cage no matter what it's made out of. This ultimately refers to the trivializing narratives portrayed at Mount Vernon 10 years earlier by different interpreters, and instead demonstrates a maturing of the theme and a actual recognition of the historical context and experiences of black enslaved people at Mount Vernon and what exactly it was like. Now, still in general, this is a segregation of this interpretation from the main sites and exhibit areas. There is ability for individuals to explore these different sites and to visit the places where the enslaved lived and the places where they worked. But in reality, the whole place, all of Mount Vernon, was where enslaved people worked. Therefore, by having separate sites and exhibit areas on slavery, it segregates that knowledge from the actual site itself. It separates it from Washington, uh, and any incorporation is relative. It doesn't fully incorporate what role slavery played at Mount Vernon, which is an integral role that absolutely uh, defines the site's historical context. And in attempting to address this difficult history, these hard histories of 
enslaved people and how they how they lived at a site of someone so revered in the country, which is extremely contentious and can be met with backlash, it's important to stay true to that historical context and what happened at the site. It's important to recognize the conditions and the fact that they were harsh and that people were still enslaved and that, to quote uh, Brenda Parker, to recognize that a cage is still a cage, no matter what it's made out of. I couldn't agree more, Jacob. Transparency is clearly of enormous importance when interpreting these difficult histories at such institutions. As is described by author Jeffrey J. Crow in an article regarding the interpretation of slavery at historical sites, quote, inclusiveness, truthfulness, research, and tailored interpretation are principles that can serve any historic site. In the context of African-American history, they can provide a framework for reaching audiences uninformed and unexposed what many historians believe is a central theme in this nation's past race. Crow explains that Colonial Williamsburg faces the conundrum of having to present an accurate picture of the past, while at the same time catering to the demands and the prejudices of its paying audience. He notes that perhaps no historic attraction has incorporated African-American history so successfully into its overall program as Colonial Williamsburg. In 1775, almost half of Williamsburg's nearly 2,000 inhabitants were African or African-American. But before the 1970s, most visitors would not have seen any evidence of a Black presence. The progressive development of the material at Colonial Williamsburg is largely due to the creation of the Department of African American Interpretation and Presentations, which was established in the 1980s. In 1979, the Colonial Williamsburg Foundation made a strong effort to integrate African American history and culture into its research, programs, and site interpretation. Historians, archaeologists, architectural historians, curators, and others work in conjunction in order to design responsible African-American public history programs. Grants and endowments to the Colonial Williamsburg Foundation have funded major African-American history initiatives, including the reconstruction of a rural slave quarter at Carter's Grove Plantation, and a wide variety of interpretive programming throughout the historic area that brings to life the everyday experiences of African-American men, women, and children. According to the foundation, the pre-1979 Manual of Interpretation barely mentioned slavery. There was only one explicit reference to servants and slaves. Slavery was interpreted in just one place, the plantation office. The interpreters only discussed slave owners and their trials managing the enslaved population, but made no mention of the hundreds of people who fed, clothed, and served their owners. The 1988 manual, produced nine years after Colonial Williamsburg's initial commitment to African-American interpretation, made some very important developments. African-American programming flourished between 79 and 88, carving a new narrative that touched on all parts of society in order to provide a broader and more truthful understanding. Carter's Grove became the site of historically accurate constructed quarters, new approaches to interpretation, and a team devoted to telling the stories of the quote-unquote forgotten. The 1988 manual grappled with big issues like black-white relations, the development of African-American cultures, and daily life within the slave system. All of these themes were crucial in the development of Colonial Williamsburg into a more socially conscious institution and a major turning point for the future of African-American interpretation. Today, living history presentations, exhibits, and special tours have emerged to tell the story of slaves, free blacks, and indentured servants within the context of a thriving colonial society and economy, all of which was excluded before. The information demonstrates thorough preparation, accuracy, and unflinching honesty, all of which contributes to the esteemed interpretation that is provided. In the same way as Colonial Williamsburg, Thomas Jefferson's Monticello Estate has made a point of becoming a more socially conscious and inclusive cultural institution. With the help of numerous staff members and scholars, a collection of new projects and initiatives have commenced. Staff historians, Lucia Stanton and Diane Swan Wright launched the Getting Word African American Oral History Project, 
an undertaking that has gone on to preserve a multitude of recorded interviews with nearly 200 descendants of Monticello's enslaved community. These oral histories serve as an intrinsic element of the slavery tours at Monticello, which are offered on a daily basis. Stanton, a prolific scholar, published Free Someday, The African-American Families of Monticello, as well as Those Who Labor for My Happiness, Slavery at Thomas Jefferson's Monticello, which, in addition to the oral history project, shed light upon the previously unknown lives of the Hemings, Hearn, Granger, Gillette, and Hubbard slave families, all of whom played integral and diverse roles in the Monticello community. Publications as such combine previously published essays on enslaved families with new findings based on the getting word oral histories that describe the lives and experiences after slavery. In addition to these projects and publications, a website was launched regarding the Getting Word project to make the information available to virtual visitors. As well as this, Dr. Eugene Foster, along with a team of geneticists, established a genetic link between the descendants of the Jefferson and Hemings families. These findings were published in the scientific journal Nature, and these findings have since served as a very important facet of the history presented at Monticello, as it demonstrates that the enslaved community was intertwined into history in ways that many people did not realize. For example, Monticello's post-1809 kitchen has been restored, and in this kitchen, enslaved chefs trained in the art of French cuisine, such as James Hemings, prepared sophisticated dishes for the Jefferson household. Now, it is used in live demonstrations by historians like Michael Twitty, who offer insight regarding cooking methods of the enslaved community, as well as the true origins of many dishes that we know and enjoy today. Monticello also co-sponsors a major exhibition known as Slavery at Jefferson's Monticello, Paradox of Liberty, with the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture. It travels from Washington to museum venues in Atlanta, St. Louis, and Philadelphia. And this exhibition, like others, again demonstrates that the enslaved community was intertwined into history in ways that many people were unaware of. With all of the publications and exhibitions that are well underway, Monticello has demonstrated their commitment to continually reworking material and tailoring it to be appropriate as findings are made. New innovations in slavery research clearly have a large impact on academic scholarship and public interpretation at museums, and with its strong commitment to these themes, Monticello is helping to set the precedent for the future of public interpretations of difficult histories. And I think a very successful way in which they achieve that is through recognizing the names of the enslaved people and recognizing their contributions to the site, if possible. For example, at Montpellier, the home of James Madison, Paul Jennings was a long-time individual who was enslaved from birth by the Madison family, who played a pivotal role in the family in White House, and wrote a memoir about his life as an enslaved person. Someone like this is a perfect person to explain the struggles and experiences of an enslaved black person in colonial America and in 19th century America to highlight those experiences. And confronting these individual stories, uh, much like confronting the individual stories at Auschwitz-Birkenau, is an extremely, extremely provoking way to uh, communicate this difficult history and to personalize it and to get people to make their own assumptions about the topic at hand. And a final takeaway note that is important to emphasize and a kind of final thought for interpreting the history of enslaved people in American slavery is that this is a group of people who were displaced from their homeland without choice. So much of the culture they created whilst living in America was adapted under harsh conditions, and they saved a lot of their African roots and adapted and created new, a new culture within a country under forced circumstances and extremely difficult circumstances, which ultimately demonstrates resilience and willpower under adversity. 
And this is also very, very important to portray because these individuals had plenty of agency over their lives and they took it when they could. And it's extraordinary and it's important to confront. Well said, Jacob. And to change gears a little bit and analyze something on a bit of a smaller scale, but certainly no less in notability, are the Detroit riots of 1967. Over the course of five days in July 1967, the Detroit Police and Fire Departments, the Michigan State Police, the Michigan National Guard, and the U.S. Army were involved in subduing what became the largest civil disturbance of 20th century America as a result of confrontations between black residents and the Detroit Police Department. A raid of an after-hours drinking club took place, which was the site of a welcome party for two Vietnam War veterans, and all 82 patrons at the club were promptly arrested, and from there, violence soon escalated. The crisis eventually amounted to 43 deaths, hundreds of injuries, and almost 1,700 fires, as well as over 7,000 arrests. The issues of racial discrimination, police brutality, and economic dislocation began to tear dozens of cities apart during the 1960s, and this narrative followed Detroit for many years to come. In the past, information regarding such events has been clouded and left people wondering what took place and, just as importantly, why it took place. Today, Institutions such as the Detroit Historical Society work to shed light on such events and provide a full, detailed explanation from all points of view. Detroit 67 Perspectives Exhibition at the Detroit Historical Museum allows visitors to better understand what exactly took place, what happened leading up to it, as well as the impacts that it has on today's society. It analyzes the 50 years prior to 1967, as well as the 50 years afterwards up to the present day, detailing the progress and setbacks that have occurred along the way. As is described by the Society, the exhibition narrative concludes by offering a perspective on what lies ahead and will challenge the community to use what we have learned in the past hundred years to help create a future for Detroit filled with unparalleled promise and opportunity. Detroit 67, looking back to move forward, has been described by the Historical Society as a multi-year community project to bring together diverse voices and communities. As well as this, the Detroit History Museum's Oral History Project is a massive collection of stories and experiences shared by Metro Detroiters that represent a wide array of perspectives. This project portrays the thoughts and feelings of those who were in positions of authority during the event those who lived in the city and remained, as well as those who left the city afterwards. This project does a fantastic job of encapsulating the events in their entirety, seeing that the testimonials are given by an assortment of individuals. It is of enormous importance to acknowledge the different scope that everyone views the same tragedies through, and every perception is obviously vastly different. And for that reason, the Detroit Historical Society in particular does a phenomenal job of encapsulating all of the information that they can to give us the broadest understanding possible. Yeah, absolutely. I, I look to that and um, ultimately interpretation is about letting people make their own assumptions about things. And um, when all those perspectives are provided, then that really allows someone to uh, make their own uh, conclusions and ultimately um, understand the culmination of what happened in Detroit in that year. And now we're going to shift to the west side of the United States back to World War II again. And we're going to explore Manzanar and the issue of Japanese internment camps. Now, for those unfamiliar with Manzanar, um, this is basically what happened. In 1942, the United States government ordered more than 110,000 men, women, and children to leave their homes, and they detained them in remote military-style camps. The Manzanar War Relocation Center was one of the 10 camps where Japanese-American citizens and resident Japanese aliens were incarcerated during World War II. And these sites were particularly difficult because many of these individuals were 
third generation citizens or second generation, having been born in the United States, having never even been to Japan. But because of the bombing of Pearl Harbor, FDR signed this order, which caused all Japanese American and Japanese immigrant individuals in the United States to be sent to these concentration camps. And they were here for several years. Some individuals had to grow up there. To better explore the experiences at Manzanar and this difficult history, to provide a more provoking narrative, there are several oral histories available, recorded by the National Park Service from the 80s into the 2000s. And one of these particular individuals who experienced this site was Momo Nagano. Momo Nagano was born in Los Angeles. Her father immigrated to the United States as a teenager. When Japan bombed Pearl Harbor, her father was arrested because he was involved in judo, which is a popular Japanese martial arts sport, which uses swords and uh, various types of weapons to combat each other. And he was transported across the country to various prisons and camps. And eventually, Momo Takano herself and her family were sent to Manzanar. Fortunately, she was able to protest the arrest of her father at a hearing with the Manzanar group, and the group was impressed by her patriotism, which allowed her father to join her family there in Manzanar in the summer of 1943. But this doesn't excuse the various types of hardships that Momo Nagano went through. She recalls experiences at Manzanar with the food, how everyone would have diarrhea and how everyone would have terrible bowel movements due to the quality of the food there, how there wasn't really much to do and how individuals were moved around by the guards and treated as if they were prisoners, which they really were. Even though the U.S. government told them that it was a relocation camp, they were kept there indefinitely, and they were not allowed to leave, and they were not allowed to go anywhere, and they were completely trapped. And she spent all of her time in her high school years there, into college, where she learned and worked and lived her life. She recalls a particular moment where there was a survey in which the individuals at the camp were asked to answer whether or not they'd fight for the USA if they were asked to. Her mother pressured her to answer no, but her gut told her to say yes. They mentioned the US government at the time that this was not going to have any consequences, it was merely just the statistics aspect. But those that answered no were sent to a terrible camp up north, and those who answered yes were allowed to stay and possibly had the opportunity to leave sooner, which she ultimately did. She was allowed to go to college and pursue her degree, and recalls particularly how a Quaker girl helped her in her experience. Eventually, she became a visual artist and lived her life doing that, and as demonstrated through her oral history, she takes this experience with her to her late end of life. She mentions how she has a friend particularly who would never accept the reparations given by the U.S. government to those imprisoned at Manzanar in the 1980s. His wife, this man who refused to accept the reparations, his wife begs him to accept it, but he's hard-headed. He felt that he was wrong. To quote another prisoner at the camp, who was a third-generation Japanese-American who grew up on a farm in California, Victor Muro-Oko, he felt that the Japanese-American population got screwed, to quote him. He felt they should have deserved more money for what they'd done, having earned a couple tens of thousands of dollars. He said that if this happened to a white person, they would have gotten six figures. He particularly remembers also the food that they ate at the cafeteria. He had stomach pains constantly due to constipation because the food he ate, which he described as lousy, was causing him to have this. His experience and his perspective, alongside Momo Nagano's experience, demonstrates that 
even with an apology, even with reparations. These experiences cannot be healed. The wounds were made, and these people were betrayed by their own country. And it appears that in interpreting these cases and the site specifically, it's important to listen to people like Momo Nagano or like Victor Muroko. It's important because they know these experiences more than anybody else. And their perspectives, combined with others, details what life was like at Manzanar and emphasizes the socio-racial issues that caused Manzanar to be created. Victor Muroka remembers particularly riding through a part of California that was known for having racists and being a center for white nationalist groups and how they yelled at the bus and how they harassed them. He remembers that individuals were very aware that Japanese families were being rounded up and how when they were getting rid of their stuff at their house, if not cared for by their Canadian neighbors who eventually actually sold all their things, they put it in a large pile and there were scrappers driving around looking for stuff to salvage from these Japanese families who were taken from their homes. And he remembers particularly his uncle looking these people in the eye and setting the pile of their stuff on fire so that these scrappers could not get what they had. And Momo Nagano recalls a house her father built in Los Angeles and how when they had to leave, his father left it for a friend to rent. And eventually this friend rented it to this one man. And when he came back, the man claimed he owned the house. And because of laws at the time, which did not allow his father to take this man to court, he had to pay back the house that he already built and paid for. And ultimately, the resilience in this narrative is striking. And the stories that these people tell are one of a kind and really are the best and most provoking way to understand these experiences. And interpreters at the site itself, which is now a part of the National Park Service, do exactly that. The site now provides both self-guided and guided interpreter-led tours throughout the site with a variety of educational standards and materials for schools. The guided tours are site-specific and have various levels of education based on the groups, including a discussion forum for those well-versed on the history. Educational standards are based on identity, connections to the past, war, and for 10th and 11th grades, internment experience and perspective and consciousness. There's another program for younger students called Become a Park Ranger, where students get a badge for familiarizing themselves with the Mansnar stories. This includes completing a booklet which prompts children to watch a video on Manzanar, research the story of one of its prisoners, answer questions on maps, research a historic toy kids would play with at Manzanar, and reflect on what they learned. And ultimately, this interpretive programming takes into mind the individual experiences of individuals like Victor Morooka and Momo Nagano. And ultimately, when exploring these difficult histories, it's extremely, extremely important to recognize the voices of those who are affected by these difficult experiences, if possible. I absolutely agree. The ability to take charge of the commemorative narrative process is of utmost importance and applies very well to the last site that I would like to talk about today, which is Sand Creek, a site in southeastern Colorado Territory. The events that took place here are well described in a book by author Ari Kelman, known as A Misplaced Massacre, Struggling Over the Memory of Sand Creek. The Sand Creek Massacre National Historic Site commemorates the November 29, 1864 attack on a village of about 700 Southern Cheyenne and Arapaho people along Sand Creek, which is about 170 miles southeast of Denver. At dawn, approximately 675 soldiers of the 1st and 3rd Regiments Colorado Volunteer Cavalry killed more than 230 of the Cheyenne and Arapaho over the course of just seven hours. 
For more than 150 years, the Sand Creek Massacre has maintained its significance as one of the most emotionally charged and controversial events in the United States history. Congress designated Sand Creek Massacre as a National Historic Site in 2000, and the site was dedicated and formally opened to the public on April 27, 2007. For most of American history, whites had systematically written Native people out of the national narrative, more often forgetting than remembering them. Most historic sites that recount westward settlement take on the perspective of white settlers. Memorials that do discuss Native Americans typically use them as benchmarks for national progress, as objects rather than as subjects. Native people are regularly cast as uncivilized, suggesting that they have no history of their own and are exclusively a people of the past. Looking to shift this narrative, many Native people who helped in the creation of the Sand Creek Historic Site rejected what they saw as, quote-unquote, a hollow offer of painless healing and quick reconciliation. These Native people understood that controlling the interpretive apparatus in the context of a national public space offered them a very rare opportunity to steer the commemorative process. It was insisted upon that the site be referred to as the Sand Creek Massacre National Historic Site, as well as that the massacre story be told from the perspective of the natives. Many Kiowa County residents were described as hesitant in regards to the historic site, seeing that they did not want to be looked down upon by advertisement of a massacre in their backyard. As explained by an analysis of this text, a misplaced massacre considers the amalgamation of the history and the memory of Sand Creek as a result of unrelenting tension over the shape, location, and meaning of this site of troubled history. This is but one example of the present being affected by antipathy over the actuality of the history. Through the eyes of three different men, all with vastly different perspectives, one being a perpetrator, one being a witness, and one being a victim, the author of this book recounts various moments from commemorative events regarding the Sand Creek Memorial Site, and in doing so, emphasizes that many who were part of this commemoration process had no true concept of the anguish felt by others. The author quotes, for example, the Colorado governor at the opening ceremony in 2008, who emphasized that the new memory site constituted a foundation for healing and for living in peace without conflict. The county commissioner saw it as nothing more than a facet of economic growth and made no mention of the massacre during the opening ceremony of the site. The book, however, serves as an example of how harrowing the process of commemoration can be for those who have been victims of callous historical events. Too often, those involved in the process of commemoration fail to understand this and consequently seem apathetic and distasteful. Symbolically, the massacre was misplaced as a result of differing interpretations of what took place, namely rejection but also the memorials that mitigate the severity of what took place by referring to it as a battle. The author goes into great detail regarding the efforts made by some countries to incorporate their troubled pasts into reconstruction for a better future, in particular, Germany and South Africa. However, Kelman condemns the United States for their failure to do so by continually distorting history in order to construct a more tasteful narrative. He explains that the Civil War is still viewed in a very positive light, as something that transposed a history of violence into one of virtue. Despite this, the westward expansion that took place in the United States must be seen in a violent context. While the Civil War may have contributed to the abolition of slavery, westward expansion decimated the Plains tribes, and the Sand Creek Massacre is one notably severe event. While people throughout history have clung to the idea that the massacre at Sand Creek was a heroic effort with the purpose of civilizing the West, it is more apparent now than ever that we must reform such views. If the new memorial manages to, quote, challenge visitors to grapple with competing narratives of U.S. history, Kelman concludes, then perhaps the massacre will no longer be misplaced in the landscape of national memory, end quote. Thank you so much for that last vignette. And I guess now that we're wrapping up the episode, it's time to think of some bigger themes that relate to that. And I'd like to contextualize that within the idea of a commemorative museum pedagogy. 
This CMP is a technique which analyzes the ways in which people confront difficult knowledge. What people do is they receive, resist, repeat, reflect, and reconsider. And when one, in my opinion, provides these individual narratives, these individual perspectives, for example, at Sand Creek, providing the perspectives from uh, Native American groups, or perhaps at Auschwitz-Birkenau, providing perspectives and experiences of the individuals, or at a place like Monticello and addressing James Hemings specifically in the individual and his experience. In confronting these difficult histories, it's a very provoking way and kind of a universal theme in interpretive models that are successful is confronting this history through exploring the personal narratives of those affected by it, if possible. Because overall, these histories are not only difficult to confront because they are so harsh, but also in some cases difficult to confront because they are contentious, perhaps because of a political atmosphere, such as the case with American slavery, or as the case with Sand Creek. And what I have to say to this is to reference a quote by David W. Young. And in this quote, he states that in history, the things we can agree on are the least meaningful to explore. And that's why these contentious histories, these difficult histories are so important to explore, not only for commemorative purposes, and not only for the purpose of remembering the histories of these individual experiences and why they were difficult to confront, but also they're important to confront because they are difficult in nature and that people disagree on them. And overall, this will create a more meaningful and more fulfilling outcome from confronting these narratives. Thank you for listening to the Kalamazoo Valley Museum's Interpretive Hour podcast. If you wish to learn more about the episode and topic, please visit kalamazoomuseum.org podcast for a bibliography, notes, transcripts, and other behind-the-scenes content. Due to a COVID-19 stay-at-home order, the museum is currently closed until further notice. Until then, stay safe and healthy, and visit us in two weeks where we will talk about planetariums.